There's uh, two readings this morning. Uh, the first is uh, taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 41. I'll be reading out of the uh, New King James Version. It's Acts 2, verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The second reading is uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So, what a joy it is to come and to turn to God's word. Just before I do that, I just want to say that please fill out this uh, form and pop it in the... Uh, uh, offertory boxes. It's better that you do that because if you don't, I will be filling them out for you. So it would be an advantage from your perspective uh, to complete that. But it is good to be involved and to support uh, our fellowship, our church, wherever we can uh, do so. So thank you, Chris, for reading the scriptures. And uh, what a tremendous passage that uh, section of Romans uh, chapter 6 is. It's one, of course, that we would probably all know fairly well, and if you've been coming to our fellowship for the last uh, couple of weeks, then you will certainly know it because we have been reading that section together. So baptism is not something additional to the gospel. It's an important point that we understand that. What baptism is, is a portrayal of the gospel. It enables us to understand exactly what the gospel is about. And if you're like me, uh, you'll find that pictures make a good impression on your mind. You remember things if you see them rather than perhaps just uh, uh, having something written down. And baptism, as we see it here, this is our baptistry. If you're uh, not familiar with our fellowship, it's uh, a, a tank and it's empty at the moment, but it'll be being filled up before too long. And it's uh, designed that we go in and we're able to demonstrate the gospel by the individual who has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are buried under the water and then they are raised to new life again as they're lifted up out of the water. And so we understand that's very clearly a picture of the gospel. And I'll explain that in just a moment. 
Baptism is vital and it's central to the, uh, to the Christian experience. Now, if you've been with us, as I say, for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we've been looking at Romans uh, 6 and we've been able to see the three main elements of baptism very clearly. And last week it was tremendous as we spoke about something that we don't often talk about, which is being buried with Christ. And the number of people who have come to me and said, I've stopped fishing. And it had to just, you know, I had to think for a moment what it was that they were talking about. And then I understood because we had remembered the account of uh, the fact the scriptures say that God takes our sin and he goes to the deepest part of the ocean and he buries it as deep as he possibly can. And Corrie ten Boom, the uh, Dutch lady who went through the Ravensbrück concentration camp, and when she had met with one of the guards uh, when she was speaking in Germany after the war, and he just said, you know, God can't ever forgive me, can he? And she said, yes, he can. And he does as you come to faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only does he bury your sin, and let's face it, if you were in charge of a concentration camp, you know, there were things that you shouldn't have been involved in. But not only do you bury them, he says, God says, no fishing. They're gone. But all too often, we find that we can't help but go back fishing. We're looking for the things from the past. And maybe other people come fishing above the water to look for what has been buried. And so the two verses that uh, we concentrate on this morning are, don't you know? Now, when the scriptures say that, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's obviously saying you should know. But it says, or Paul says here, don't you know, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we see the three elements of baptism very clearly shown to us. The fact that we die, we die with Christ. That's imperative. Because if we don't die, then nothing's changed. And so we die, we're buried. And of course, that's where our sin is placed. We bury it. All too often we try and carry it through into our lives and keep running with it. And then, of course, because we've been buried, we are raised to life and uh, to newness of life. Water baptism, as we know it, is an outward physical act that portrays an inward spiritual truth. And today is the last of this little series that we've been looking at of baptism. The outward act is important, but it is important only as it portrays the inner truth and the inner experience that has taken place. So don't get baptized if you've not experienced salvation. Because the Bible says, repent and be baptized. There is a clear order in Scripture. And however, you know, you can stand on your head, swing from the light fittings, do whatever you want. You can't change the order of Scripture. Lots of us try to. In fact, there are so many occasions when we come along and we like to change Scripture, maybe in our own minds, but we want it to try and justify what it is that we have been involved in. So these three movements that are part of baptism, uh, that are pictured uh, by baptism, by immersion, which is obviously the best way to interpret how the New Testament is speaking about baptism, I would just simply say that sprinkling of babies is not mentioned once in the scriptures. 
But we're not here to discuss that particular point this morning. But baptism by immersion gives graphic pictures of what it means, first of all, to die. To die with Christ, the act of going down into the water and then being buried with Christ, the act of being lifted up out of the water and thirdly, being raised to Christ, uh, being lifted up out of the water. And this outward act of baptism was designed to portray this inner spiritual truth and reality of our union with Christ. This inward spiritual truth is what we actually call the gospel. Baptism is not something in, additional to, in addition to the gospel. It is a portrayal of the gospel. It is a clear demonstration of the gospel. It is a picture of the gospel. It is the picture that somebody is united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And there are two words <clears throat> to describe the main aspect of salvation. These two words are redemption on the one hand and regeneration on the other hand. And I want to just talk about these two this morning because, again, sometimes we can get ourselves into, into trouble as we begin to think of these. The first thing that we notice is that they are both separate things, redemption and regeneration. Redemption, of course, we recognize. What does it mean? It means to buy back something. Uh, if you've... Uh, going to redeem something, it means that you're going to go back and you're going to pay for it and you're going to collect it, you're going to take it away. Um, sometimes the analogy of, a, of a, a, a pawnbroker would explain that to some respect, but maybe you go to get your coat back because you've uh, paid for it to be lo looked after or you've, you've got that ticket and you redeem your coat. Perhaps you've been to the theater or some concert or something. Now in the Old Testament, it speaks of the redemption of slaves, for example. The redemption of property. When you read in uh, Numbers and Leviticus some of these strange uh, laws and, 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 uh, and Old Testament understandings about being the kinsman redeemer and so on, you think to yourself, what's all this about? Well, it's amazing how the Old Testament speaks so clearly of the New Testament and then we see the Lord Jesus Christ coming along. But it talks about uh, redemption of slaves, a redemption of property, uh, redemption of fields, it talks about redemption of animals, the redemption of people, and it even talks about the redemption of nations. Israel is redeemed from where? From Egypt. In the New Testament, it refers to the act of salvation. So earlier in Romans 3.24, for example, the scriptures say this, that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, it's Jesus who redeems us. And there are other verses, many in fact in the New Testament, that speak of this. The act of redemption is portrayed in the first part of baptism. Our death with Jesus Christ. Where we're united with Christ in his death where we see the justice of God is satisfied. Because remember, friends, it is not God's mercy that saves us. It's the justice of God which is satisfied. God's mercy, of course, is demonstrated and shown to us. God's love is shown to us very clearly in that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. He lived, he went to the cross, he died, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead. And we rejoice in that. This act of redemption 
is the first part that we look at when we were united with Christ in his death where the justice of God is satisfied and we praise him for that. And as we talked last week, when it comes to burial, there is a sense of finality, isn't there? The life is over. It's done with. All our sin was placed on Christ. Not only did he die, but we die with him. You see, the finality there is that our old life is left behind. And yet, sadly, it seems that there are so many of us who seem to want to try and continue the old way of living into the new way of living. We're quite happy to carry over some of the things that we feel we want to carry over from our old life. And yet, the Scripture is very clear, and God is very clear, and the Lord Jesus is very clear, the Holy Spirit is very clear to say, no, the old has gone. Because that's the picture that we have when we are buried beneath the water. We discover very clearly that the old has been buried. And the problems that so many of us have in our Christian lives are a result of the fact that we don't leave buried behind the sin that we should have. And we discover that we still have an inkling for things and we carry them forward and we want them to be part of our new life. And the scripture says, as we read, as Chris read together, the old man is buried. I was talking to somebody who's uh, not getting on with their husband. Regrets marrying him. Biggest mistake she ever made, so she says. This person's not a believer, incidentally, and it's interesting to hear how some people talk. And she said, his father died at, at about 60, and his grandfather died at about 60, so I've got every hope that it's not going to be much longer that I have to go through this existence. Now, that's sad, but we're not talking about the old man dying like that. What we're talking about is the old man, the old person, the old life, the old nature in you dying and then being buried. And it's a wonderful thing that the Scriptures explain to us. Because it now helps us to understand how this Christian life can be so wonderful, so exciting, so free, so satisfying. Because the old nature is gone. Because we're not raised out of the water to live how we did before. We're not raised out of the water to live the way that we used to live. The whole point of being buried is the fact that we have left that life behind. And when we are raised up out of the water, the picture that we have here in Romans chapter 6 is to say, but you've been raised to a new life, to newness of life. And this leads us to the second word. The second word is the word regeneration. For what end are we regenerated? What, sorry, what end are we re redeemed? For, for what end are we rescued? We are rescued that we might become regenerate, regenerated. And the word regenerate means to impart life, or more literally, to re-impart life. Regeneration presupposes that there was life, and it was lost, and now it has been restored again. And this helps us to understand 
what a great and glorious God we have. The reason why we are redeemed, why we are rescued, why we are reconciled, all of these are good words that explain the effect of the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ is not only that we might come out of our sin and guilt, and so often when you talk to people about it, that's all they seem to talk about. Well, I've been redeemed, I've been saved. You know, my guilt's gone. And that's a sad position to be in because there is so much more as we begin to see very, very clearly. But all too often we're happy to stay at that particular point. We're happy to remain there. You see, it's not only that we might come out of our sin and guilt and failure, but it is that we might become recipients of a new life in order that we live that new life. You see, our problem is much more than just that we're guilty. No, the reality is, is that we don't have to think too hard, any of us, to know about guilt, do we? Even our little children know when they're guilty. They look at the ground. They hide. She's two, but she knows she's guilty. We know and we're conscious of sin. But you see, in the Christian life, there's something deeper than just this. Our real problem is that we are spiritually dead. And to be spiritually dead means, in the words of the Apostle Paul, that we are separated from the life of God. Now, in order for that life to be restored to us, we need to be forgiven. And that's another beautiful word in the Scriptures, isn't it? Forgiveness is a wonderful thing, but forgiveness is a means to an end that having been forgiven, the decks are cleared, the mess in our lives have been cleaned up, that we might become recipients of spiritual life, which is the life of God imparted to us. And not just imparted to us, but lived by us. Now this is where it becomes incredibly exciting because the life of God is given to us, but it is also then imperative that it is lived in us. And how does that happen through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? Because I can't do it. He can do it. Romans 5.10 says this. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, that's our redemption. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now that's our regeneration. Paul explained that there is much more to the gospel than redemption. Having been reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Here's the purpose. Having been reconciled, we will be saved through his life. And we need to understand this, not as some addition to the gospel, but as the whole purpose of the gospel, that the life of God is restored into our human experience. In other words, we become spiritually alive again. Sometimes we talk about the gospel as though it is primarily getting rid of our sin. I've mentioned that already, but it's incredible how so many people stop at that particular point. They like to feel that they've been made clean. 
They like to feel that they have been made respectable again because God has dealt with their sin. And then doing the best we can, of course, we try to live a good life. We try very hard to live a good life. My sin has been dealt with and I'm going to try and live a good life. But this is a pathetically weak understanding of the gospel. But all too often, that is what people think that this is all, is all it's about. You see, if we understand the gospel as being primarily about getting us out of our sin and preparing us for heaven, then the big issue of the gospel is whether you have got an alibi or not. We watch a program called uh, Death in Paradise. Now, you might be worried about that because the, 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 uh, the title sounds uh, a bit strange. But it's a, a series that I and, and Joe and our family have been watching for a long time. And if you can get hold of it, it's well worth it. There's some good reasons for it. Yes, there's always a murder, but we can overcome that part. However, it's the cleanest program that you can come across. There's no swearing in it. There's no sexual innuendo and all that stuff. It's just good family TV. And we always sit together. My wife normally works out who it is who's committed the murder in the first few minutes of the uh, of the program and we sit together and we try and work it out so that's death in paradise from the bbc if you can get hold of it i hate to break this to you but what we've just outlined about an alibi you know i didn't murder the person because i had an alibi I've got an alibi to get to heaven. If that's what your view of the gospel is, then it's the saddest view I can imagine. Because it means that you're not enjoying the fullness of the Christian life. You're not enjoying everything that God has given to us in the presence of the Holy Spirit living within us. It's not the gospel. If it is, then get yourself ready for heaven. How? Well, basically, the idea goes that you get bundled up into groups, and we call them churches. You get taught how to behave appropriately. If you like, you get house trained. This is how often churches work. And occasionally, you get sprinkled with some sort of disinfectant just to keep you clean. And then eventually, some sort of storm washes you up on the beach of heaven. Is that what you want for the Christian life? To be washed up like some sort of beached whale on the beaches of heaven? No, it's not, and it shouldn't be. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, this understanding, <coughs> as I say, is, is very sad. It's also seriously wrong. But I want to share with you that increasingly people are believing this. That there's no way we can enjoy the Christian life now. I don't know if anybody's seen that, this book uh, at all. It's a, it's a pretty good book. And we bought it to try and encourage our children to learn theology in a great way. But just listen to how things sneak in. So this is the page on baptism. And... Uh, the book graciously covers believers' baptism as well as sprinkling babies. And on this section, 56, baptism, it says, In baptism, going under the water is a picture of how 
the person dies with Christ to their old sinful way of life. No problem with that. Coming up out of the water is the picture how one day we will be raised from the dead. Just like Jesus was. Now what's missing? Shall I tell you what's missing? Everything about the Christian life. Everything. What are we going to do with the bit in between coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and being washed up on the beach of heaven? How are we going to cope? How are we going to live? How are we going to be able to deal with that? You see, it creeps in so many places. Everywhere, in fact, you discover that there is an undermining of the imperative of the Christian life. We don't have to live and struggle. We don't have to cope with all of these things. Listen to this pastor who wrote an article recently, uh, published um, this, this book. I'll be honest with you and say, uh, Joel Beakey writes on the back of it. Joel Beakey is a man from this town. Says what a good book it is. This pastor says this. He says, writing of salvation, he says, the spiritual life that we gain is not the here and now. Oh. But it is in eternity. We receive it after our bodies pass away and we have died here on this earth. Now a great paradox or puzzle exists for us. Whenever we accept Jesus Christ, our new eternal life is to take place in heaven, not on earth. Whenever we accept Jesus Christ, we become eternal beings, just as Christ is eternal. But we are stuck here on this earth until our physical bodies pass away because our life here on this earth is not our true life that we receive when we get to heaven. But we must live in the here and now according to the principles of the rules of God's kingdom. Do you begin to see the problem? How are we going to cope? How are we going to deal with the part in between? I say it again, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is not going to leave us to fend for ourselves. Of course, it's true there are, there are things to come that we do not enjoy in their fullness here and now. But you see, friends, my eternity began in the twinkling of an eye that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, that I repented and turned to Him, that I changed my mind. My eternity is not going to begin the day I die. And God has promised that He's not going to leave me now to struggle all by myself. And when people say to me, well, I don't really know if I'm a Christian or not, there's a problem. Because if you've been raised with Christ, the old life is left. Your sin has been buried. And you have the Holy Spirit living in you, giving you the power that you need to live this life. 
Spiritual life is not something we get when we die. Spiritual life is what we receive here and now. The life of God who comes to inhabit us and to live within us. Again, there's a problem that I see in so many churches today. They don't like talking about relationship. Relationship with God. Relationship with Jesus Christ. It's almost as if God is just this thing to be revered. But when it comes to a relationship, they've little to say. And of course, if you hold to what this says and what this pastor says, well, then you'd say, well, what's the point in a relationship? It's not going to work anyway. And so we discover that it is imperative that we understand fully what the gospel is about. And baptism by, by full immersion as a believer demonstrates it so clearly and helps us to understand all that we need to know. So it's relationship. The writer in that little piece that I've read to you has a gospel of redemption, but no gospel of regeneration. What baptism portrays is that we have identified with Christ in his death and burial, and therefore we have been redeemed. We have been freed from our sin in order, as Romans 6 verse 4 says, in order, this is the purpose, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That is, that the life of Jesus, the resurrection life of Jesus, may be imparted to us. There's, if you like, an element, a coming out element, a coming in element in the gospel that baptism portrays. And this is the way that baptism explains it to us in the New Testament. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 about this, he talks about the children of Israel. When Moses led them out of Egypt, you remember that that they'd been enslaved for many years and he led them through the Red Sea and then on through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. And when Paul is speaking about this, he talks in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2 about how they were all baptized into Moses. Um, The cloud, uh, and and baptized into Moses into the cloud and into the sea. The cloud was a cloud which led them by day. We haven't got time to talk about that just at the moment. But he says there, baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. And I've got to say to you, I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures of baptism that we have in the whole of the scriptures. The people went down into the water out of Egypt, out of Egyptian territory if you like where they had been enslaved, making bricks under the burning hot sun for many, many, many years, hundreds of years. And God led them through the Red Sea and then through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. And when Paul is talking about this, he talks in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2 about how they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud, uh, as I said, we'll, we'll talk at a different point about but it's the fact that they were baptized into Moses. So they went down from Egyptian territory, and when they come up the other side, they come out, and they discover that they have left their old masters, their slave masters behind. Pharaoh and his army are following them, try to round them up and bring them back, but they came up the other side, and Pharaoh couldn't get hold of them because they'd come to new ground. They'd come to a new land, with a new purpose, with a new life, and everything had changed. They had left their old masters dead and buried behind them. 
And now says Paul to the Corinthians, this is a picture of what baptism is. You came out of the old life in order to come into the new life. Not when you die, but right now. And so very often, we are so quick to stress, and I understand fully why, the importance and the value of coming out of the old life. But we don't always stress the great value and the importance of coming into the new life. Baptism is not just identification with Christ's death and his burial. It is also an identification with his resurrection to walk in newness of life. A pastor had been preaching from Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in this new life, I live, I live in dependence upon the Son of God who now lives in me. Christ lives in me. A young man who was a Christian, a believer, he met the pastor who had spoken afterwards and asked a few questions about the message that he had shared. And he said, well, what does it mean that Christ lives in me? And the pastor was able to talk to him and to answer the question. Then he went on to say, what does it mean that by faith in the Son of God, in dependence on him, we live? And the pastor again was able to answer some of the questions for him. The young man went on and said, but I've never heard this before. They've never taught this in this church to me. And so the pastor asked him, well, what gospel have you understood? Well, that Christ died for me and I confess my sin to him and I am forgiven and I am given the promise of going to heaven when I die. But I've never understood this new life part which is Christ living in me and then living in dependence on him every day. And the pastor said to the young man, have you been baptized? And the young man said, yes. And the pastor replied to him and said, they should have drowned you because you've only got half the gospel. Should have left you under the water because that's all the gospel you've got. (coughs) And there are lots of Christians who should be drowned because they've only half the gospel, because they're still living in the past. Thank you. You see, if all you're interested is getting off the hook with God, then you'll never appreciate everything that God's done for you. Getting out of heaven is what I'm trying to, sorry, getting out of hell and getting into heaven is all I'm interested in. Getting rid of my guilt, easing up my conscience, freeing me up with a clean sheet of paper to start again. That's all I'm interested in. But there is a resurrection in the gospel and that resurrection is the impartation of the life of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, when he talked to them about the Holy Spirit who is going to come, he said, He is with you and will be in you. He's with you and will be in you. The word another that is used in this particular passage 
has two meanings. The Holy Spirit, another will be with you, the Holy Spirit. And the meaning that it's used here is to say this, another with an identical nature. So when I give you another counselor, the meaning of the word another is the counselor will be myself, exactly who I am. It is the Holy Spirit who will come to live in you, my life in you. And so they're interchangeable terms. Christ is in you. The Spirit is in you. If you go to the book of Ephesians, it talks about living in the fullness of God in chapter 3. It talks about arriving at, the sta at a, a stature of fullness in chapter 4. It talks about being filled with the Spirit in chapter 5. So in that one letter, you've got the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Is it three separate fullnesses that you have? No. It's the one fullness. It's the fullness of God as the Holy Spirit lives in you. The life of Jesus Christ. It's the same life that comes to live within you. And that's why Paul said to the Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What's the power of the resurrection? that I am now living in the strength and the power of a life, you look later in Romans 6, that has died. And what's so important about that? He can't die again. And that's the life that lives in us. Jesus has fully met the demands of sin, but is now risen from the dead, and he lives in me the power of an endless life. That's ours when we're raised from the dead, when we're raised in Christ. And you've been thinking to yourself all this time, wow, this Christian life is pretty tough. Nothing exciting about it at all. And you feel that because all you're doing is copying other people. All you're doing is doing what you've been told to do. All you're doing is being a house-trained Christian. And you've missed the point. I want to know Christ from the power of that life operating in me. And so many Christians miss this fact. In fact, this is the very missing ingredient that changes the Christian life from being about as exciting as pushing a truck uphill by yourself because you never realized it had an engine in it. Now, I don't think there's anything less exciting than pushing that truck uphill, is there? It's heavy. And you put your shoulder into it. And you keep going. And then you see the button inside that says start. And you realize you didn't have to push it up the hill. And that's how some people's Christian lives are, because they're doing it themselves. They're struggling on their own. It's not a mythology. It's not a spiritual discipline. It's a person that is the resource of the Christian life. It's not a you know, how-to self-help guide. 
Jesus told his disciples in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, as you abide in me, in the way that a branch is connected to the trunk, as you abide in me, I abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. Things will go well in your life. In terms of the fact that you will see people brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will see God at work in your life. But Jesus went on to say, but without me, how much can you do? Don't all rush. Without me, what can you do? Nothing. Thank you. Okay. Without me, you can do nothing. You see, you can know your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You can know all the catechisms. You can know everything. But that will accomplish nothing directly, spiritually in your life. Remember, Joe and I were in Tim Hortons on one occasion, and a certain church uh, locally had finished its uh, confession of faith class. And a group of teenagers came out, and they were ordering their coffee. And uh, uh, suddenly the girls uh, said, oh, we're going to go off and get changed, because they weren't allowed to wear jeans at the confession of faith class, but they would change immediately afterwards. And one of them said something to the effect, oh, was that in the catechism that we're not allowed to do that? And I thought, okay, you've obviously listened really well to what was taking place. You can spend six hours a day in prayer and you'll accomplish nothing unless the source of what we do is Jesus himself. In Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted it, there is something he said that must have absolutely shocked the disciples. Now, it wasn't the first thing he said when he said, and he took this loaf of bread and he broke it up and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. It wasn't that that shocked them. In fact, he'd already told them he was going to die. They didn't take it seriously didn't believe him in that sense. But it wasn't new information that he was giving them. Eating the bread was no problem. But when he took the cup, and said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. He said, this wine represents my blood. And then he shocked them when he said, drink it. Now, why would that shock them? No Jew would ever drink blood. In fact, blood was expressly forbidden to be drunk. Why was blood forbidden to be drunk in the Old Testament? Because it was intrinsically unhealthy? Was that the reason? No. In fact, blood has many good qualities in it. Iron, for example. And if you come from Britain, you'll enjoy something called black pudding, which is made from blood. I see someone shaking their head. I'm looking forward to black pudding. <laughs> For breakfast one day when we go in the summer it's good for you no 
There was another reason why. Because the scriptures specifically forbid them. Deuteronomy 12, 23. Be sure you do not eat the blood. Because the blood is the life. And you must not eat the blood with the meat. Or Leviticus 17, 11. The life is in the blood. And the reason why under the Old Testament they were not allowed to eat or drink the blood is because there was no provision for life. That's why the word regeneration you don't find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament we find that the Spirit was with people. And now everything's changed. Because in the upper room Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will now be in you. He will dwell in you. That's going to be the new covenant. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant, and it means you can break the law, drink the blood. Because what is going, on to, what is going to happen is that this new covenant is not simply that your sin can be forgiven. It could be forgiven under the old covenant, couldn't it? Through the sacrifices of bulls and goats. And their blood representing as a foreshadowing of Christ. But Jesus says, now you drink the blood. This is the new covenant. It is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant is, I will put my spirit in you. Yet although blood, of course, does have cleansing properties, the blood is also part of the cleansing of us because it is the life offered up in sacrifice. But now it is the life given to drink. In other words, if I can make this distinction, I make it only casually, but I think it is an important distinction that the bread represents Jesus giving himself for us and the blood represents Jesus himself to us, giving himself to us. But you know, it's possible to receive the new life, but to continue living the old life. And that's what the scripture calls living in the flesh. It is living by human resources, by human effort. It's pushing the truck up the hill on your own. Living in the flesh, when Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8, is not about running off with your neighbor's wife. It's about Christians trying to live the Christian life by their own skill, by their own discipline, and their own ingenuity. And he says in Romans 8 verse 5, those who live according to the flesh. The flesh means not the human body that is not intrinsically corrupt in itself, but all that I am, human sufficiency, all that I am apart from God, that's the flesh, me living in my own strength. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds 
set on what the flesh desires. In other words, they have their own agendas, their own goals. They may look good, they may sound good, some of them are good. But they are purely fleshly, purely human. And you can explain their lives and explain what happens with their lives. You can explain what they do purely in terms of their ability, their skills, and their disciplines. But Paul goes on to say, but those who live according to the Spirit. And I hope, friends, that that is us. But for it to be you means the Holy Spirit has to live within you. And if he doesn't, then you're living according to the flesh. One of the hardest things for people to understand today is that there is no middle ground. You can't be a Christian or not a Christian and then be somebody in the middle who's nearly a Christian or feels like they're a Christian. There's no middle ground. Either Christ has died for you and his Holy Spirit lives in you or it hasn't. And the Holy Spirit doesn't live within you. But there's no middle ground, and there are many people who think there is. But it doesn't exist. You can't offer anybody some sort of tactical technique or process that bypasses all that the Scriptures explain. That's why... Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, that verse explains it all and it takes us back to the word relationship that we spoke of at the beginning. What it's saying is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, you need to have a life of intimacy with God. You see, going to bed at night with your Bible on your, your nightstand beside you you, you, you might pick it up and open it. You might just leave it. But going to bed with your Bible there won't do it for you. It's not going to make the difference. Coming to church won't make the difference. Mixing with other Christians won't make the difference. You know, it, it's not COVID-19 we're talking about here. It's sort of like if you cough over somebody, they're going to become COVID-infected. Or if I cough over somebody, they're going to become a Christian. No, 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 no. That, that's not how it works. But a lot of people seem to think that's what's involved. And it's not. None of those things work. It is only our intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. It's because we have a relationship with him whereby we recognize we're sinners. We recognize what Jesus has done for us. We recognize he's dealt with our sin. And then we understand the gospel that we have been buried with Christ. We died with him. We've been buried. Our sin has been buried. And then we're raised to new life. And that new life is dependent upon Christ living within us. Um, I knew a pastor who used to once ask, uh, you, when you were walking out of church at the end, he'd say, um, where are you grazing today in the word of God? Okay. He was a farmer, incidentally, and he was a, a, a preacher as well. 
And if you've got any cows, have you ever stood in a field and listened to cows when they go to the grass and they rip it off? I think here they all keep them in sheds, but in England they're all in fields. And if you stand there, you hear this, and they rip the grass off, and they're chewing it. And I want to ask you, where are you grazing at the moment? Are you grazing in your relationship with God? Are you grazing in his word? Are you eating it up and swallowing it, taking it inside you? Or are you somewhere else grazing? Which takes your heart, your mind away from God. So intimacy is important in the Christian life. It's vital, in fact. Relationship is vital. Where are you grazing at the moment? The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is, every moment in every day... I am in dependence upon him. It's a place where I exchange my weakness for his strength. I exchange my foolishness for his wisdom. It's a place where I exchange my sin by his grace. And every day it becomes a disposition of dependence, of trust. It will be a life of service for God because out of all of that will flow the fact that you and I are on his business no matter what we're doing. The Christian life is not the result of our capacity to imitate God but the result of his capacity to reproduce himself in us. Do you see the difference? Now, you could say we've veered away from the subject of, uh, of baptism, and to a point perhaps we have, except we had to understand what is being spoken of here. So I ask you this question in closing now. Where do you stand this morning? I've asked you where you're grazing. I'm not being unkind to you. It's just a good analogy. Have you embraced the whole gospel? Or have you just taken a part of it and you're thinking to yourself, the bit I've got is what I wanted, which is my get out of hell free card. Baptism means to die with Christ. The act of going down into the water, being buried with Christ, being put under the water, and then being raised with Christ, coming up out of the water. Baptism is vital and it's central to the Christian experience. Now I realize that there are people here this morning that perhaps have not even seen baptism as presented in the scriptures. You've never seen a person buried in water before in a church. And you're thinking to yourself, that sounds just crazy. But if you want to see the gospel, then you need to come. I realize that there are some that believe passionately here this morning that sprinkling they received as a baby is their baptism, even though the scriptures say nothing about this particular church tradition, introduced hundreds of years after the New Testament was penned. If who, that's the subject, is baptized and how they are baptized was not important, can you tell me why God's word places such an importance upon believers' baptism? 
Why is it that account after account of those who came to faith in the Lord Jesus as Savior are recorded, that are recorded for in the scriptures and that they were immediately baptized? Why does it say that? Our baptism in the Holy Spirit is shown visibly by our baptism in water. Our baptism in water shows to the church and it shows to our friends and it shows to our families that we can be trusted because what we're saying, we've demonstrated. And the pastor didn't drown us. I was raised to life. And that demonstrates to me that I have the power of the resurrection living within me. You see, we can be trusted because we've been obedient to Jesus who commanded that we repent of our sin and be baptized. Our physical baptism also shows the powers and the forces of evil that we now belong to Jesus. Everybody who's been baptized knows exactly what that means. I was talking to a man here in our fellowship just a few days ago, and he recounted that it was only, that he was the only member of his family who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the pastor of the church that he was at, I'm sorry, I've just seen the time, I'm so sorry, we'll bring it to a close. And the pastor of the church that he um, was brought to faith in said, you need to be baptized. And he understood that he did. And then he went on to say, but do you realize that Satan did everything to stop me from being baptized? If baptism as a believer is nothing, why does it give Satan the willies? Why does it cause him to do everything he can to stop us? I'll tell you why. Because it is the greatest testimony that you can ever give. Not just to your friends, not just to your church congregation, not just to your family, but to the powers of evil in this world. Friends, the time is right for you to be obedient to Jesus and to be baptized as the scriptures explain. You've put it off long enough. You've resisted long enough. You've got no more excuses left because you've started to read the word of God and you now know in your heart clearly what it is that he expects of us. And we're looking forward to holding a service of believers' baptism soon, possibly on Easter Sunday. And I want to ask and encourage anybody here, if you know that you need to be baptized because you're ready, because you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because you have indeed buried your sin, you have indeed been raised to new life, then I'd encourage you to come and speak to me. If you want to talk to my wife, please do so if, you, if, you're, if a woman would prefer to do that. But I can say to you now, that your baptism, as the scripture portrays, will enable you to live the Christian life in a way that you have never understood before.